Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hello and welcome to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined today by Noah. Hi, y'all. And Rich. Hey, good to be back. On today's show, we're going to be talking about uh, Rich's area of expertise, which is history, uh, specifically labor history and uh, local labor history at that. Uh, Subject for today's show in advance of uh, May Day coming up next week is uh, the 1946 Rochester General Strike. Um, This is a topic that you selected specifically for us, Rich, lead in with like what we're talking about here. What is this? Because I can't imagine many of our listeners will be very familiar. Yeah. So I think one of the the oldest, if not the oldest slogan of the American labor movement is an injury to one is an injury to all. And, you know, this has always been like, it's an exemplary slogan of solidarity. Like, you know, if you, you hurt us, we're going to hurt you back and protect ourselves. It's also a self-defense mechanism, a recognition that like if one of us is injured, if they can do it to one of us, they can do it to all of us. Um, and so in May 1946, uh, in Rochester, uh, a city, I want to emphasize, not particularly known for its labor activity or its militancy. You know, there were unions active, but uh, it, you know, it wasn't Detroit. It wasn't Toledo. Uh, it was, you know, smug town. Uh, over a two-week period the uh, the organized labor movement in the city effectively shut the city down in order to protest uh, the unjust firing of 489 city workers. So it wasn't just city workers that went out in protest. It was workers from the clothing factories. It was truck drivers. Uh, it was milk delivery men. This was 1946. So uh, the, the milk deliveries were interrupted. The garbage wasn't being picked up. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's just a great example of a moment of, of worker solidarity people coming together to achieve common goals and, you know, self-defense. Uh, and it, it also stands out too as, as a, a successful strike uh, at the end of the day, they won. Uh, and so often, you know, you go through the, uh, you know, the pages of American labor history and it's like crippling defeat, demoralizing disaster. Uh, but, you know, the Rochester general strike, I, I think more people should know about because it does provide a moment where uh, the solidarity works, the union wins. Uh, you know, the, the bad guys, in this case, the, the city of Rochester, uh, lose. We, we love to see it. Um, I, I think it's worth just talking about, you know, what a general strike entails, because unless you're in circles like ours, you don't really hear that term thrown around much these days. General strikes don't really happen in this country anymore. Um, you, you know, you might see occasionally Facebook calls for one to happen on a given date that lead nowhere and result in nothing. But, uh, you know, a general strike means effectively nothing, you know, anybody in solidarity with the strike in the city is not going to work. Yeah. You know, the, the typical strike is, is focused on a sector focused on like a particular employer. Uh, and, you know, you summed it up, Ryan, you know, a general strike is, uh, everybody goes on strike. Uh, you know, there are only a couple uh, of approved 
uh, work actions allowed. Um, so famously during the Seattle general strike of 1919, uh, food delivery service workers who were in the union uh, were also ordered by the, the strike committee to stay at their jobs because, you know, food delivery was so important. Um, and a similar thing actually happened in Rochester. Food service workers and unions were, uh, you know, were told like, you know, don't go out and strike. We need you at your jobs. But everyone else uh, to the streets, shut the city down. Um, and, you know, this is this is our leverage over over the city. Uh, and this is how we're going to to win the day. You know, if, if nobody's working, the city's not working. The city the city government can't govern. Uh, and so stopping that is, is the way to uh, win your demands. I noticed that these are all uh, the, the two general strikes that you're talking about are strikes of public workers. So before this might be a little bit early to, to sort of head this, uh, have this question, but is that the case for most general strikes? Are they, you know, city workers, town workers sort of saying we're, we're all going to come together and, make it impossible for the government uh, to continue normal operations? No, actually, actually, part of what makes Rochester so unusual too, or the Rochester strike so unique is that it was uh, a city worker strike uh, that instigated the general strike. This is something maybe we can talk about a little bit later, but like public workers, you know, it, it's hard to imagine now when public workers are sort of the backbone of the existing labor movement in the U.S. But, you know, in the, up, up to the 1940s, they weren't, typically an organized sector. Uh, it was kind of considered inappropriate for a public worker to be in a union. Um, so that, that's part of the argument the city manager, Lewis Cartwright, was making in 1946 is that uh, these public workers were serving in the public interest uh, and not therefore shouldn't be serving in the union's interest. Uh, and what happened, in fact, is that the AIFL and the CIO came together. They weren't, they weren't, they hadn't been reunified yet in 1946 and said, no, workers' interest is the public interest. That means public workers as well. Um, but to, to address your other point, you know, there were other uh, other general strikes in 1945 and 1946. Um, off the top of my head, I can think of, there was one in Stanford, Connecticut around the same time uh, around, I believe it was a textile factory. Um, and then there was another one in Lancaster, Pennsylvania uh, that originated in a, um, I think it was an auto works, maybe it was a railroad works. Uh, but the point is, they were private sector unions, uh, and uh, everyone rallied around them. The community rallied around them. Uh, to uh, in this in in those cases, kind of lean on the city government to lean on the business uh, to get them back to work uh, in, in fair terms. Now, oh, yeah. what what set off the Rochester general strike in particular? You mentioned earlier the um, the firing of several hundred city workers. Yeah, so after World War II, the city was facing a, a bit of a budget crisis. Uh, the city had grown pretty tremendously because of the expansion, primarily of Kodak, uh, but you know, defense industries in general. And the city had a hard time keeping up with the costs of maintaining municipal services. Um, so once the war was over and a lot of the, the wage and uh, price controls and the labor piece started to um, come unraveled, uh, the city government uh, attempted to basically impose austerity uh, on its own city workers. Um, so that fall in 1945, they went to the Department of Public Works, uh, the garbage truck uh, collectors, or the, the garbage collectors, excuse me, and tried to cut costs by imposing more onerous work rules on them. Um, so basically speeding them up. Uh, and then also by imposing uh, incent an incentive structure on them. 
So tying their wages to how much garbage they picked up rather than, you know, a standard wage rate. Um, so the goal of both of these was to, you know, work workers harder and pay them less uh, simultaneously. Um, they were being paid on commission for garbage. Basically. I'm not exactly sure how the, the incentive structure would have worked, but I imagine it was something like, you know, every can of garbage you you pick up, you get, you know, some some piece rate for. Um, and, you know, the, the more the more garbage you picked, uh, the more you'd be punished because then the piece rate would go up. Um, but anyway, they were righteously, you know, annoyed by this. And so started to organize a union uh, under the auspices of the uh, the American Federation of Labor, the uh, the AFL, um, the Federation of State County Municipal Employees, uh, sent an organizer to Rochester um, to try to channel the, these grievances into into the formation of a union. So for several months, there was a back and forth as, as the workers in the Department of Public Works rallied around the union, demanded that the union be recognized, and the Republican-led city government uh, under city manager Lewis Cartwright, um, just as a sidebar, Rochester did not at that time have a mayor. It had uh, the, the city manager was a uh, basically a paid civil civil servant, but still had a lot of uh, a lot of power in the city. Um, this, the Republican-led city government then responded by. Uh, on May fifteenth, nineteen forty-six, firing four hundred eighty-nine mostly garbage truck garbage collectors, and uh, attempting to basically subcontract garbage collecting out to the private sector to uh, ward off the union drive. Now you've given us um, a bit of an article from RochesterLabor.org on you know this strike and the history of it, and a quote from it. Stands out to me uh, specifically on the firing of uh, these workers. Uh, quote in an editorial titled "Fascism Rides High," the AFL's labor news commented, "Quote Cartwright's Gestapo sallied forth at midnight to tell 489 workers they were fired for exercising their rights under democracy. The heels of the dictator's henchmen began to thump on the streets of Rochester." Now, here, you know, 70 years later, the idea of comparing anything to Nazi Germany is, you know, there's, it's considered crossing a line of sorts. So increasingly less so as the comparisons become more apt. But to see that comparison be made like four months after World War II ended is is just sort of funny to me. Just, um, um, to be fair, on the other side of the pond, uh, Clement Attlee and Churchill were fighting the election at this point, and Churchill was openly saying that nationalizing the health service was also the Gestapo. So, the man, man, man jumped in there with both feet. I'll also take this moment to uh, to shout out uh, the the dean of Rochester Labor History, John Garlock, for his article uh, that Ryan cited on on the Rochester Journal strike of 1946. And I, you know, I'm drawing on on that, and also the book uh, Rainbow at Midnight by George Lipsitz, uh, which which covers the, the the labor culture of the 1940s, 1950s, but also has a nice uh, little section on on the Rochester general strike. Yeah, you know it, it is important to note the context. Like the, like I said before, this is right after the war. Uh, the memory of the the victory over uh, the Nazis is fresh, uh, and in fact, one of the early uh, events in the strike is a uh, an attempt to interrupt a rally. Uh, basically celebrating the end of the war. Um, so I think f- I think 40 of the 489 fired workers were returned war veterans. Um, so they had just come back from overseas, back to their jobs, um, and they were basically put right into a fight uh, to you know maintain their maintain their status, and you know were understandably furious about it. You know I think that's why they're 
Um, they're using that language of fascism. Um, so, you know, three days later, three days after the firing on May 18th, there's a I am an American Day rally at the uh, the George Eastman Theater, uh, which I imagine was a very hoorah event uh, celebrating, you know, baseball, apple pie and uh, victory over Germany and the Nazis. And the veterans who had been fired picketed the rally and demanded to be let inside to uh, to speak to uh, the audience to, you know, link their cause to the cause, you know, they just fought for. And the, I think it was the vice, vice chairman of the council, the city council refused to let them on stage. Um, and a large number of the audience at that point uh, in Eastman theater walked out in protest uh, with, with the, with the picketing strikers. Um, so, you know, right away, you know, they're, they're making it clear. This isn't just about the 489 fired workers. This is a community in danger. This is a community rallying around a, a moment of injustice to try to rectify uh, what was very widely seen as a, a wrong done against um, some necessary public servants. And, you know, at, at three days without garbage collection too, you know, worth, worth saying it was already starting to, uh, to pile up um, and, you know, quite literally make a stink. Um, and, and this action would go on for, for two more weeks. Um, so you can imagine, uh, you know, as the, as the trash was piling up, uh, how, uh, how the city was and it's, you know, remarkable given that how, how solidaristic people m- remained, you know, it was an inconvenience. No one liked it, but you know, they understood what was at stake. Now, how did things proceed from there over the course of those next two weeks? You know, how, what, what more tactics were brought into play here? You know, they've already shut things down. How do you escalate from shutting down the city? Well, they, they haven't shut down the city yet, to be clear. They, they set up pickets around, um, the the Dewey Avenue depot where the garbage uh, the garbage trucks were based to prevent any uh, scab workers from getting in um, and to set up the protests and uh, you know like I said they they protested the the I am an American Day rally but from the beginning the local labor leaders treated this as an emergency um, and they, it was a cause of, of unity um, so you know I want to reemphasize the AFL and the CIO were still split they're still separate labor federations. Um, and in many ways, they were still at each other's throats in 1946. AFL and CIO unions would raid each other uh, for union members uh, in, you know, in normal times. Uh, the reunification wouldn't come for another 10 years. Um, but right away, the AFL and the CIO local leaders had separate meetings and they agreed to cooperate. Um, and so all throughout the strike, it was an AFL-CIO joint committee um, that set up a 24-hour uh, strike headquarters on West Main Street. And then organized pickets um, from supporters from all local unions and even some non-union uh, truck drivers from the city. Um, so these pickets were primarily targeted at uh, the Department of Public Work buildings uh, and government buildings. And right away, the uh, the city of Rochester uh, sicked its uh, police department uh, on the picketing uh, lines. Um, so on May 21st, uh, the lead, the local Teamster leader and one of the AFL leaders, Anthony Capone, uh, along with several dozen others, were arrested for, quote unquote, heckling the police officers. Um, and, and a couple of years later, in, in the trial for wrongful arrest, the police officer admitted that he thought booing police was a crime. Um, so, you I know, I was going to say that's one of my favorite things a cop has ever said. Yeah, uh, <clears throat> it's not a crime. It wasn't then. It isn't now. So that that really inflamed things. Um, and, you know, led to more community resentment at, uh, 
at what was happening and of course you know animated the the picketers to keep up the pickets two days later uh the police then launched basically a mass arrest a kettle of uh 200 plus picketers um, who were gathered as a, at a gas station preparing to uh to go to the dewey avenue garage uh i think to this day it's still the largest mass arrest in, in rpd history um, so they brought them all in and gave them, you know, ridiculous fines. I think it was like a hundred dollar fines each for disorderly conduct. Um, you know, there's pictures of them sitting Which in was twice as much as the max fine. Yeah. So it wasn't even like the legal fine, but when it, when it comes to labor, you know, the law doesn't apply. We, we know that all too well. I, I do love this sentence from the article that we've, uh, you, you gave us, Rich. This mass arrest, the largest in Rochester's history, netted not only workers on picket duty, but a school teacher on her way to work, a passing plumber, and a dog belonging to one of the pickets. Yeah, in, in case you arrested a dog. In, ca- <laughs> yeah. in, case in case you're wondering <laughs> if there's ever a golden age of American policing, like, no, they, they've always been like this. Uh, and down to the fact that they, you know, were, were assaulting a dog. It's a real "Are we the baddies?" moment. <laughs> it should have been. Um, so from there, you know, th- those mass arrests uh, really inflamed things, uh, and th- th- I think the mass arrests plus sustained efforts by the unions to build community support built up to Tuesday, May twenty eighth, uh, which they called the labor holiday, uh, which I've always loved as a, as, a, as like a telling phrase of, of what their their ambitions were. Um, so the labor holiday was kind of like euphemism is the wrong word, but it's just another way of saying general strike. Everyone's taking the day off. Um, nobody's working and we're going, we're going out in the streets to make our presence known. Um, so, you know, Tuesday, May 28th comes the labor holiday, 50,000, I think is the upper estimate of Rochester workers didn't go to work that day, turned out in the streets. And by all accounts, it was like a carnival-esque atmosphere. Uh, there was a mass meeting at Washington Square Park. Uh, people listened to uh, local leaders harangue against city manager, harangue against the Republican City Council. Spent the day off uh, enjoying, you know, the food and the, the nice weather. Uh, by all accounts, it was a lovely day, uh, low 80s, uh, May weather. Um, and, you know, it was a real, like, demonstration of, of solidarity, a demonstration of uh, the joy that was possible in coming together in a common struggle for a common cause. Um, but of course, always buried within, uh, you know, the, the joy and the, the celebration of a moment of a labor holiday like that uh, is the fact that this is an act of, of leverage. It's an, it's an act of coercion against the government. Uh, you know, Ryan, you were talking earlier about the over-the-top language they were using. Capone referred to general strikes as an atom bomb. He said, you know, they, they didn't like to use them uh, except as like a last resort. Because uh, they knew how powerful they they were, um, you know. I, I certainly quibble with the the metaphor, but you know, I take his point. You know, they are uh, very powerful actions. But unlike the atom bomb, I would take it a step further and say, let's use it more. Uh, it's it's not uh, not quite that level. But anyway, uh, the labor holiday made its point. Essentially, the governor of New York, Thomas Dewey, um, had presidential ambitions. Uh, you, you've probably seen the picture. Dewey defeats Truman. That was those two years later. Um, he didn't want this black mark of a uh, of a general strike, uh, a lingering general strike on his resume when he was you know planning to run for president. Um, so he leaned on Cartwright and local Republican leadership to settle the strike. Um, and so on May 30th, two days after the labor holiday, uh, the strike was settled. The workers were all reinstated, all 489. 
the union was recognized, or excuse me, the right to bargain uh, with the union was recognized. Um, and over the next uh, few months, uh, the DPW and other city workers would hammer out uh, their first contracts uh, with the city of Rochester. Um, and to this day, in fact, city employees are, rec- are uh, organized as a, a local under AFSCME, um, the, Ameri- the American Federation of um, State, County, and Municipal Employees. Um, so this was the uh, the origin point of that uh, and, you know, the, the building of a, a strong local union. Now, I might have the timing on this wrong, but like legally, they already should have had the right to organizing by this point, right? Like we've you made the point earlier that the law doesn't really apply when it comes to labor. It's just, you know, whatever power says it is. But by this point, there were laws enshrining the right to organize. So for them to need a strike of this level to achieve that is sort of telling as to how receptive those in power were to that idea. Yeah. And I have the timing wrong or no, you're right. The national labor relations act, the Wagner act, you know, which basically essentially legalized uh, unions as a, as a, as a form is 10 years old at this point. Um, But you're right. It's telling that like, it's not fully enforced except when workers enforce it. And I think that speaks to why the AFL and the CIO worked together and treated this as the emergency that it was. Um, because if the, if the law was allowed to lapse, uh, if exceptions and carve outs were allowed, like, you know, public workers by custom, you know, if not by law, weren't supposed to join unions. Um, this was going to have ripple effects, uh, going long down the road. Um, and so, you know, the law only exists, uh, as long as workers enforce it. Um, and here I think you, you do see a moment of workers stepping out in 1946 to ensure that their rights uh, as American citizens under the under the Wagner Act uh, were protected. Um, and so George Lipsitz makes a great point in his book. Uh, you know, the strike start, started out as a moment of self-defense. Uh, this was a, almost a, it was a rearguard action against the firing. Um, but this moment of self-defense evolved into a victory. Uh, you know, the, the, it turned into a basically offensive battle uh, for for workers' rights in the in the city, and was you know very successful. You know, like I said, the, the union still exists, protecting city workers to this day. Public workers are still the remaining backbone of of the American labor movement um, in, in a very real sense. Um, and so, you know, the, the Rochester General Strike, you know, isn't is the entirety of the story, but it's an important chapter of it. I, I think now would be a good time to take a break, having told you know the basics of you know how this strike played out to when we come back from this break we'll talk a bit about the context in which it took place and you know the labor scene in the united states in the late 1940s we'll be back you're listening to punching out on waylp rochester if you'd like to continue slacking off, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Noah. Still hi, y'all. And Rich. Still here. We spent the first segment of the show talking about the 1946 uh, Rochester General Strike, which took place in May of that year. And we want to move on in this segment now to talk a bit more about the context uh, in which it took place. The 1940s were a 
very active uh, decade for the labor movement in the United States. Uh, you know, really things have not been as active since. Um, this was a tumultuous time and obviously a larger history, uh, World War II, things of that nature. But um, these changes and things going on in um, you know, geopolitics had reverberations within American labor. And Rich, uh, where do you see as sort of like the starting point for this segment? You know, what's what stands out to you when we're talking about this time in American labor history? Well, yeah, it, it's worth remembering how all-consuming, you know, World War II was for the American economy. Um, like, rather famously, the New Deal didn't end the Great Depression, you know, despite, you know, the positive actions of the, the Franklin Roosevelt administration to try to jumpstart the economy. The Depression didn't really stop until 1940 when the U.S. started arming itself and arming Britain uh, and eventually the Soviet Union for, for the war against the Nazis. And then, you know, once Pearl Harbor came and the United States was was fully in the war, uh, basically the, every facet of the economy was rededicated to the war effort. So, like, there wasn't a new model car out of Detroit between the years 1941 and 1945 uh, because Detroit was making airplanes and tanks now. Shipyards opened up across the American South and the American West um, to produce, you know, at one point I think a ship a day or some, you know, outrageous production number. The point, the larger point, you know, I'm trying to make is that all at once, anyone who wanted a job can get one. The jobs are all pretty well paying, uh, you know, industrial jobs. Um, and for the most part, they were also union jobs. Um, one of the bargains that, that Roosevelt sort of negotiated with uh, corporate and union leaders is that the federal government would maintain wages, maintain prices, but what their extraction for this promise was what they called the no strike guarantee. Um, so from 1941 to 1945, the union leadership agreed not to strike uh, against their bosses. Uh, this pledge wasn't, you know, entirely honored. Uh, there were frequent wildcat strikes during the war, um, usually to protest unsafe conditions and, you know, the, the stretching, the stretchings out of the factory. Um, but for the most part, come 1945, come the victory, uh, America's working class, those who had fought on the home front, uh, were, had a lot of pent up energy and had a lot of high expectations about what the post-war world was going to look like. And, you know, they imagined that they were going to have an important say in, in building the world as they imagined it. One that was um, less onerous, had less onerous work days, had better wages, had better benefits. Um, that the American dream, you know, quote unquote, could be uh, achieved by uh, the entirety of the, the American working class. But, you know, the exigencies of the post-war world kind of, you know, Put a limit on that, but sorry, go ahead, Ryan. Uh, I'm going to take a bit of a step back to something you said, which is uh, this idea that everybody who wanted a job could get one during this time. Um, and for a lot of, for many uh, women in America, for the first time, this included them because so many men were going off with the army, with the armed forces, that, you know, a lot of jobs needed to be done still that, you know, there's now space for women in these workplaces. And this was a point of uh, friction when the men came back from you know, Europe and the Pacific. It was, you know, and also a moment of, of uh, industrial integration, racial integration as well. 
uh, thanks to uh, union intervention. So A. Philip Randolph, the uh, the, the president of the uh, uh, the one of the the, the Pullman Car Brotherhood, uh, basically told FDR like if you don't guarantee that we're, we can black Americans can have uh, integrated jobs in these these war factories at you know the same pay rates as white workers, we're going to lead a ba- march on Washington D.C. Um, and you know FDR not wanting the uh, the bad press of a uh, a black uprising in Washington D.C. while he was leading a war for democracy abroad, uh, basically agreed to it and so established a fair employment commission. Um, so you know when we are saying you know basically everyone could get a job that wanted one, we do mean. Uh, really, for the first time in American history, on a more or less equal basis, this was true, uh, which is you know still remarkable. And so, all of this creates a real energy when you know uh, a lot of veterans are coming back from the war. A lot of um, you know because those people who gained jobs weren't necessarily interested in seeding them right away to people coming back who had left to fight you know, in the war at the front lines. Um, This is a moment of um, peace has been achieved in terms of the war, but in terms of uh, workplaces, there's a big new tumult. The the aftermaths of wars are are famously difficult transition times in in any uh, any state economy. Um, So all at once you're losing, you know, billions of dollars in war contracts. You know, there's no more... No more need for massive production of arms as there had been in the wartime. Um, and so there's that pressure. And then, as Ryan mentioned before, soldiers are being demobilized. You know, the millions of, you know, USGIs that had been drafted or who enlisted to fight in the war, the army didn't need them anymore. So they were coming home and they expected their old jobs back or they expected jobs, period. Um, and so there's, there's this dual pressure uh, on the economy. Uh, in 1945 and 1946 uh, to maintain standards despite these economic realities. Um, and, you know, I'll just back up even further and say this had happened only 25 years before after World War One. the same exact pressures. Uh, and what followed was a strike wave and what followed was a red scare. Uh, you know, the government repressed uh, attempts by labor's, labor movements and socialist organizations to uh, uphold their gains and, you know, tried to quote unquote return to normalcy. Um, and there was in the upper echelons of us leadership, uh, at least some level of commitment to trying to avoid the red summer of 1919 again, not to avoid that chaos and to have an orderly transition into the, the realigned American economy. We can talk about the directions they went, you know, the military industrial complex, the consumer state, these are all strategies to try to, to keep full employment as existed during the war. Um, but from ne- from 1945, from the vantage point of 1945, workers don't know that's going to happen. But they do remember what happened in 1919. And so they're they're ready to to strike, to uphold and, you know, expand what they had gained during the war to make, you know, the war uh, meaningful. You know, the sacrifices they made in the war meaningful to them uh, and in building a, a better USA afterward. And and I have to imagine that the returning soldiers would have in their minds what happened to the bonus army, specifically too, the the fact that soldiers from World War One were, uh, you know, uh, did not get what they were promised uh, for their sacrifices fighting abroad. And in fact, instead got shelled by Douglas MacArthur. So... That's uh that that I, I have to imagine that if, if 
that's th- what they're thinking of from the vantage point of 1945, at least some of them. That That's the most recent action they've seen against veterans who ask for what they, they've been told they will get. Yeah, and then there will be a GI Bill and, you know, mortgage support for returning veterans. And I think in large part as a response to what happened to the Bonus Army um, during the Depression. Uh, again, an attempt to avoid, to buy labor peace uh, with, you know, consumer goods and uh, full employment uh, is, you know, the government's strategy after the war. But again, from the vantage point of 1945, they don't know that quite yet, or they don't know how that's going to actually work. What they do know is organizing in unions works. Unionizing, you know, direct action gets the goods, as the slogan goes. Um, and it's it's with that sort of understanding of, of how power and politics works um, that workers in 1945 and 1946 mobilized to uh, uphold their rights and uphold their, their gains from the, the war. You, you touched on this a bit in the first segment, but Rochester was not the only place going on strike in 1946. This was a uh, another big year in American labor history. It was, um, I, I think you mentioned um, the place in Connecticut, was it? Uh, yeah, Stanford. There, there were, I'll have you know, Ryan, two general strikes in Connecticut, one in Hartford, one in Stanford. Uh, I don't know if the state of New York can claim uh, two general strikes in this period, so. Fair. Fair. Um, but, you know, it's these sorts of national movements that are being replicated in in the small scale in Rochester in the 1946 general strike, which is sort of what we're getting at in this broader segment that, you know, this thing didn't happen in a vacuum. This thing came from, well, context. Context exists, and it's good to know what that context is. Yeah, 1946 is to this day the biggest uh, strike wave in American history. Uh, in in that, that one-year period from the end of the war, 4.6 million workers in the U.S. went on strike at some point, uh, and that amounted to 10% of the entire labor force. Um, so, you know, it's not like they were on strike the entire time, you know, some of these strikes were pretty small and quickly settled, but still it's remarkable to, uh, to think just about how much strike activity there was in 1945 and 1946. Um, not all of it was general strikes, uh, to be clear, plenty of them were just, you know, your classic industrial actions to, uh, picket outside factories and, uh, you know, other, other workplaces. Um, but yeah, you know, there were... I think it was seven actual like general strikes, strikes that struck an entire city uh, in this period. So Rochester, Stanford, Hartford, we've already mentioned Lancaster. Uh, there were also ones in Houston and Oakland um, and, you know, uh, other places in the U.S. at the time that were inspired by the successes of other general strikes and were inspired by, um, you know, even even the lesser strikes to, you know, hey, it worked elsewhere. Why wouldn't it work with us? Um, so that, that's why you see these strikes happen in waves, you know, why we use that term strike wave um, to describe them. Like one sort of knocks the other forward like a domino um, and really produces a, a remarkable effect uh, that, that's very difficult to tamp down on once started. Uh, in 1919, they, they used uh, legal repression and, you know, armed repression and, you know, private militaries to tamp it down. And in 1945-46, uh, it was much more. Uh, how do we how do we buy labor peace uh, in this in this moment, which you know will will get us to uh, Taft Hartley and then the the post war settlement? But I don't I don't know if we want to get there yet, Ryan. No, I I think it's fine to move into that. Uh, 
You mentioned Taft-Hartley. This is a law that comes up from time to time on Punching Out. Long-time listeners might be familiar with it, but uh, for the listeners who have no idea what we're talking about, uh, what is Taft-Hartley? What did it do? So Taft-Hartley was basically an amendment to the Labor Relations Act um, and an explicit response to the strike wave of 1945 and 1946. Um, So a Republican administration or excuse me, not a, a Republican Congress, the first Republican Congress since before the Great Depression, actually after the war, um, with a lot of Democratic support, I should I should emphasize as well. It wasn't like this was just a, a, a monopartisan act. Um, over President Harry Truman's veto, uh, passed this act, um, which had a number of reforms, uh, quote-unquote reforms, that uh, were attempts to mitigate union power and prevent future uh, general strikes. So, you know, I think the most notable and the most pernicious uh, still active clause of the, uh, the Taft-Hartley Act is the, um, the creation of quote-unquote right to work. That means that, that says, you know, if you, if you don't have to join a union, but the union still has to rec- recognize or represent you uh, in a workplace, um, but also that allows states to uh, limit union uh, ability to collect dues and, and build itself. Um, more rel- more immediately relevant for our purposes is there is an amendment that prohibited quote unquote secondary boycotts by unions, which mean meant more or less that general strikes like what happened in Rochester in 1946 became illegal. Um, so you couldn't have unions collaborating to uh, strike against uh, an entity like the city of Rochester when it was just quote unquote one union uh, that was uh, the aggrieved party. So the only, only legal body that would be allowed to strike against Rochester would have been the DPW workers. It wouldn't have been the entirety of the, of the city. And that, that part's still illegal to this day. As we've noted though, on punching out, you know, legality, very fungible, you know uh, it's, if you win, then you can do what you want. Right. Um, it's only illegal if, if you, you lose. lose, there will be consequences. Yeah. Yeah. So, number one, I think we can all agree the bad law, right? I think we all come down on that side. Yeah. Hard, hard agree. Should have been repealed. How many, how many Democratic yeah. administrations have there been since 1947? And not one of them has seen fit to repeal it since. So, thank, thanks again, Democrats. Yeah. Yeah. And in particular, the PRO Act, which, you know, uh, definitely one of the, as we all know, one of the central accomplishments of the Biden administration, they pushed so hard to finally get that passed. They didn't. This is sarcasm. But it would have actually re-legalized secondary strikes, if I remember, sympathy strikes. Um, I think actually the term they used was solidarity strikes. But yes, it would have allowed for some measure of that activity to come back, which would have been one of those, like, it would have been a real blow to um, the way that labor relations have gone over the past few decades. One one of my hobby horses on this show has been that in enshrining one particular labor process, you know, the National Labor Relations Act essentially just told every corporation in the country, like, find all the loopholes in this and you win. But as you're pointing out, uh, you know, even that took several steps to do because right. you needed things like Taft-Hartley to take away the tools that unions could use to get around those things. Yeah. And, and now that collective bargaining has basically become, you know, more or less impossible 
Uh, well, guess what? Now you're finding out uh, in you know the Amazon and the Starbucks workers' cases, you know what the other tactics were, and uh, what the other why why we had collective bargaining in the first place, which you know I, I think has been great for the labor movement. So yeah, the, the Pro Act probably not going to pass, you know, fingers crossed. But uh, but yeah, it basically would have undone Taft Hartley, uh, you know, long long overdue uh, measure. It would have created a would have created a legal and a, a social space for unions to organize. Where it would have been easier, so it's not necessary, you know, as as we've seen, but you know, it certainly would have would have made things uh, better. Um, but alas, as as has often been the case, you know, we have to be flexible. We have to organize around, uh, you know, the capitalist law uh, that rule us rather than through it. There is another element to Taft Hartley, which is more explicitly like ideological, in that it leads sort of a purge of radicals from labor leadership. Uh, uh, Rich, you mentioned earlier the Red Scare that took place after World War I. Uh, the one that took place after World War II is more well known in the U- U.S. pop culture. Um, and Taft-Hartley and the sorts of laws that followed in its wake in the late 40s sort of helped to defang a lot of uh, the unions in the United States of members who were you know, open anarchists or communists at the time, uh, they couldn't do that anymore. Yeah, the, the CIO at the period in the period the the Congress of Industrial Organizations was was famous for having uh, a large number of of either openly communist or communist sympathetic fellow travelers uh, within their ranks, and you know sometimes even in their leadership, like some some unions like uh, the Electrical Workers Union or the Mine Smelters Union. Uh, were you know openly communist in their in their politics, um, and Taft Hartley basically demanded a loyalty pledge. Uh, if you wanted to be a union member, if you wanted to be a union leader, I should say, um, and you wanted to participate in NLRB processes, uh, you couldn't be a communist. Um, and so, you know, as you said, Ryan, the, the CIO after Taft Hartley uh, undertook a, a pretty substantial purge of, of its known communist members, who in many cases were some of its most successful organizers. Um, you know, they had joined the CIO out of like a deep ideological commitment to organizing the working class. They were, they were tireless, uh, committed, you know, very, very successful workers. And without them in the ranks and with labor defanged, you know, you see sort of the aftermath of, of 1946, uh, which is kind of labor's long, long sickness and, you know, terminal decline. So, you know, I, I sort of hinted at before, or not even hinted at said, uh, the AFL and the CIO were at each other's throats, often more often than not, by the mid-1950s. They were reunited uh, and basically reunited under AFL leadership. Um, and so, you know, the AFL is sort of a, the famously more conservative of the uh, uh, the Labor Federation, sort of reinstalled a much more conservative, quote-unquote, business unionism uh, focused on incremental wage gains, incremental benefit gains. Uh, but not in the the sort of radical transformations that I think workers kind of expected in 1945, 1946, a more democratic uh, society. The phrase industrial democracy was the one they used in 1946, the idea that um, democracy didn't end at the workplace, that you should be able to have control over your work day and your pace of work and your, your the way you, know, you, you conduct your business. Like workers should have a say in production, should have a say in prices, things like that. We're all on the table in 1946. After 1947, they were all sort of decisively tossed aside, and you know the wages and benefits 
you know, very much became the the focus and a very ultimately pretty short sighted way, which is a which was a, has been a shame. The degree to which unions have been reduced to just kind of tweaking around the edges. You know, I I work in a non-union place, but we have something, we have a pseudo-union, which is apparently better than most other uh, uh, schools of the type I work at have. And so because of that, we've been able to maintain some things. And actually, it's kind of weird because we aren't an official union, we've been able to bargain over things that, uh, or in ways that a union simply can't. And for a while, that was actually helpful. And then we have leadership now that is not remotely interested in being, you know, at all uh, uh, treating its workers like human beings. I mean, at this point, we're, we're reduced to begging for health insurance that complies with the law as of 2010. Like, that's where we're at at this point. But the point the the level to which unions over the over the past few decades have been reduced to sort of tweaking around the edges is I mean that that was something that obviously was a strategy to calcify union leadership and over time weaken them and did so pretty successfully. And now what you're seeing, I think, is you're seeing kind of the first generation of people and especially union leaders who um, are sort of growing up in the labor or, or coming of labor age, question mark, in uh, this hellscape that we have where basically you can't talk about how unions are all mobbed up or whatever because no one remembers a time when unions were so powerful that that would be a problem. Um, and so you are seeing that wider vision again, that idea that what a union should do goes beyond just getting a few more dollars in your paycheck, but ensuring control of your workplace by the people who do what actually happens there. And as you've said, Rich, this is happening in spite of the Democrats. This is happening in spite of a bipartisan consensus on labor that, you know, the current administration is like vaguely out of just a little bit, like it's National Labor Relations Board gives a damn that's you know about the best you can say there um but yeah it, it's out on a lot of these questions what i keep coming back to is the fact that for decades there was just this complete loss of vision the idea that this could be about anything more than a particular collective bargaining session or one particular labor fight and it's for understandable reasons don't get me wrong but uh it got us where we are now and I think uh, where we are now is going to be the subject of our third segment. We're going to talk about why the Rochester general strike and why all this stuff from the 1940s matters today. You know, why are we talking about this now? We'll be back. You're listening to Punching Out on Wayo 104.3. You can subscribe to the show or listen to past episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and other podcast apps. We are also on Facebook and Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Now back to the show. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Noah. Strikes. And Lou. Er, sorry, so used to saying <laughs> Lou's name. And Rich. I've stolen Lou's valor, and I'm happy about it. I'm uh, glad to be here. <laughs> All right. Um, 
spent the first couple segments today talking about the Rochester General Strike of 1946 and the historical context in which it took place. And we want to end the show here by tying that to the present day. Uh, you know, seven decades have passed since the Rochester General Strike, more than 75 years ago now. Why are we talking about this stuff? Why does it matter? You know, are, are we just wistfully going down memory lane or is there a point to all this? I, I take offense to the idea that it's bad to wistfully go down memory lane, but there is a point to all this. Fair. Reminiscing um, is good. Remembering yeah. some strikes. <laughs> Let's remember some strikes. Yes, perfect. Uh, but in all seriousness, because you are right now, we are in the middle of a unionization wave at two of the most American, quintessentially American companies which are Amazon and Starbucks. Uh, one of them well underway, and then the Amazon one a little bit... Uh, a, More a nascent. Bit, yeah. But uh, next year in wherever the hell the company is headquartered, because now I forget. As we record this, uh, Starbucks is at like 27 out of 29 stores that have voted on unionization have voted to unionize by the time this episode releases undoubtedly more will have voted and voted to unionize most of the recent votes have been unanimous or close to it there were like four shutouts uh and today i think it was the flagship roastery in uh, seattle yes in seattle which the flagship store if i remember correctly had already voted to unionize mm -hmm. and now the roastery did as well and it was a close vote but a win's a win so you've got the 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 main the main starbucks's the starbucks's the tutti starbucks's have voted to unionize that's uh howard schultz man what a great organizer ultimately yeah, as as Chris Smalls, the uh, the ALU leader, said, uh, "Thanks for going into space, uh, Howard Schultz. So we could organize while you were there." And and just to add to what's going on at Starbucks and um, Amazon, there's also been a, a, an Apple store in Atlanta has you know filed for a union election now, become which would make them the first Apple store to do so. So three sort of massive companies in America. Uh, now dealing with burgeoning labor movements, which is really cool to see. Uh, it's something that we can be unabashedly positive about here on Punching Out. But, um, you know, so where does uh, a general strike from 76 years ago play into all this? You know, what lessons can we learn from back then that have meaning still today? Yeah, so I mean, we're not, you know, as Noah said, it's not not a strike wave yet. Uh, it's an organizing wave, which is just just as important. Um, and, and it's great to see, you know, people in different in different shops like looking at successes elsewhere and saying, "Why not us?" Uh, which is always a great question to ask because why not us? Why should all of us should, should be in a union? Um, but like just to, to circle back, you know, to the CIO period and the, the you know these general strikes in the thirty or these strikes in the thirties and forties. Uh, the organizers of the uh, the Amazon labor union were explicitly looking in the past in in these successful organizing campaigns and strikes for inspiration and for ideas on how to win their strike. Um, so ra rather famously, or famously if you're on the left at least, uh, organizers of the ALU said they read uh, William Z. Foster's "Organizing Methods in the Steel Industry," 
uh, a short pamphlet that he published in, in 1936 that was uh, kind of a, l- a little pocket Bible for for CIO organizers. And it really just, you know, it, it's, a, it's a really brilliant little text that just lays out in, in really step-by-step fashion how you message, uh, how you organize leaders, or how you find and identify leaders, how leaders organize uh, committees, uh, you know, how maintaining the democratic nature of the union uh, is absolutely important to its vitality. And these are all lessons um, that the Amazon uh, organizers and workers took to heart and really used to build their success because, you know, they pointed out a few times, no one took us seriously. No one thought we were going to win, like, especially after what happened in Bessemer uh, at the other Alabama warehouse where the, uh, or the other Amazon warehouse where Amazon was able to union bust it. You know, it really seemed like a long shot, but just by following, you know, basic, long, proven techniques of building solidarity. You know, they were meeting each other at bus stops. They were sharing food. Uh, they were staging actions, maintaining militancy inside and outside uh, the plant. Um, they were making themselves uh, organizing ready to prepare for what Jane McLeap McAlevey calls making themselves strike ready. Um, because, like, I, I think, you know, not to put too much of a prognostication hat on, but I, I really can't imagine Amazon seeding uh, this without much of a fight. So I do think there will be some sort of battle to come, uh, but they've already laid the seeds for its success because there is that internal cohesion, that sense of internal solidarity. Um, but they've also been very, very smart in building community support um, and having that community element uh, in support of their um, in support of their strike. Because, like, ultimately, you know, one of the lessons of the Rochester General Strike is you need that. If you people, if everyone's on your side, if people are willing to stop working for a day or longer uh, for you because an injury was done to you, you know, that that's beautiful like that. Then you can achieve anything. Um, and, you know, I think we uh, in the aftermath, you know, not in the aftermath during this long pandemic, uh, you know, we, we've seen how how necessary solidarity is and how rare it is to find and how uh, we need to make it for ourselves. Uh, if if we're going to uh, achieve anything, and you know, I think that that's you know inspirational and meaningful to me. No, absolutely. It's um, I, I mentioned in the last segment that I work at a place that is not unionized, and one of the reasons that it is not unionized is that we are our workforce is mostly made up of actually the people who have been hired because they're anti-union because they've been for whatever reason, either rejected or never been supportive of the public school system. And they blame teachers unions for that. And then you've got among the younger folks who are theoretically more okay with that uh, is the problem that they're just thankful to have a job. Like I'm, I'm in a very weird spot where I have a lot of time in my building, uh, but I am the age that I am. Most of the people who are around my age have a few years in, and this sometimes is uh, you know, the first full-time job they've been able to get or something like that. So it creates a really precarious situation. And it's very strange because the sort of organic coalitions that ended up forming uh, or that do end up forming are very, very strange. They cross ages, they cross experience, they cross subject areas and everything because it's where we can find that solidarity. And, you know, it's not effective. We haven't been able to do anything with it. But it was something that wasn't there even a few years ago where you where union was a dirty word. 
in in my building where you couldn't even say that. And if you talked about anything like, you know, we we deserve more or we at least deserve something, um, you got shouted down a lot. And that has changed a little bit because of the pandemic. It has changed a lot because we have been subjected to worse and worse working conditions each year. But what I've noticed more than anything is that there is an attempt, a conscious attempt by people in the building to be better for each other out of a recognition that administration literally does not care whether we live or die. And that I think was sort of that, that step one, they're realizing that they're not actually in that different a position from a line cook or from an Amazon warehouse worker. Like, yes, our job is easier. I'm not claiming that it's not in many ways, but our administration, if we die in front of our classrooms only cares because of the media impact, they, they literally, they'd be fine otherwise. All of this is to say that even all these decades later, the struggle remains the same. You know, it's it's the same fight. It's the same issues. It's, I mean, the pandemic may be new, but the degree to which uh, cities and uh, companies and bosses everywhere demand control and power over our lives has not really changed meaningfully over the past several decades. And to the extent that this nascent unionization movement might mean, you know, a nudge in the opposite direction, you know, a better direction. That's something that here I'm punching out. We can be happy about. And that's the note on which we'll end this week's show. I'm Ryan. I'm not Lou. I'm rich. Uh, I am not a number. I am a man. And I was Noah. This is Punching Out. You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.